Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy. And before we start the show, I wanted to remind you about our listener survey. Filling it out means we know much more about what you want to hear. So if you could spare a few minutes to complete the short questionnaire, we'd be very grateful. You'll find it at economist.com forward slash economist asks survey. And the link is in the notes for this episode. A huge thank you to everyone who's already been in touch. And for those of you who haven't, we look forward to hearing from you. The first chapter in the story of human history was discovered on a beach in eastern England in May 2013. A ferocious storm had bashed the coastline of Haysborough, a village in the county of Norfolk. When the tide retreated, five sets of fossilised footprints emerged in the soggy ground. They'd been left by a group of adults and children wandering around some 950,000 years ago. They're the oldest traces of a family ever found. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, why is history a family affair? My guest is the historian and writer Simon Seabag Montefiore. Best known for being a biographer of people and places, he's weaved the lives of prophets, poets, kings and conquerors into his magisterial tome, Jerusalem. He's also plotted the course of Russian history through its remarkable and terrible leaders, from Catherine the Great to Stalin. Now he's published his latest book, The World of Family History, in which he argues that from the prehistoric humans of Haysborough to modern-day dynasties, the family unit has driven the story of humanity. Simon Seabag Montefiore, welcome to The Economist Asks. Great to be here, Anne. You've written books about cities, about countries, about big individuals in history, but your new book is about the world. Why did you decide it was time to tackle the small matter of the globe? In turbulent times, I think world history is an essential tonic. And I wanted to do it in a different way. I I wanted to do something new. I wanted to combine the span of world history with the sort of intimacy, the grit, the juice of biography. So that's why I decided to do this world history through families. Just thinking about the way that you write, you also write for television. You do a lot of TV documentaries, historical ones. How do you balance that narrative-led writing style that you're well known for with historical analysis such that you can really call this a history? I mean, can you really do those two things at the same time? I think you can. I call it tethering. My books, I hope the sort of scholarship is as sound as I can get it, but I also want them to be accessible to everybody. You don't have to know any world history to read this. The whole point is to encompass both the influence of the individual in history, but also the great trends and movements, convergences and divergences of history. And I tether them, as I said, or harness them to individuals and to families 
partly to humanize the world history and partly to make it accessible to readers and partly because it's what I like reading myself. Families are a central thread here. Why do you think that they are such an important pillar of human history? It seems like one way, if you like, of cutting through that layer cake of a whole human experience over many thousands of years. But why the family? I don't overclaim for the family as a means of, of telling world history, but it is very useful. It is the essential unit of human life and has been as long as we know about human history. The great thing about it is, obviously, it contains continuity. It encompasses many worlds. It's a study of hybridity. It includes all the great movements. For example, migration is a kind of essential theme of this book. The hybridity of of families and, and worlds merging and diverging. And those are things that family illustrates very well. In an era that we, you know, that we want to have diverse history, not just the history of Europe and North America. So diversity is one part of it. And the other part of it is women, of course. It's a wonderful way to look at female history too, and the role of children. The notion of the family has changed a lot in world history. And I'm interested that you say it's such a building block. But is it really, given that we also have the importance of tribes, we have emerging nations or something that later becomes nations, is the nuclear family really as foundational? And if so, where where do you find your first points of reference there? I mean, nations are very like families in some way. Tribes are often built around clans and clans are families. So these things are all linked. When you're talking about power families and political families, I mean, they proved incredibly flexible in history and changing. Families don't remain constant. In the mass age, political families in the 19th century, for example, proved incredibly flexible at adapting, commandeering um, the new ideologies to their own ends. And as for the nuclear family, I think what we've seen in COVID is that people return to the nuclear family um, in times of crisis. And I predict that the nuclear family will only become more important as in the West we sort of face depression, recession and crisis in the future. Your book looks at dynasties, the Habsburg, the Medici's, the Romanovs, including the Trumps. Why do you think families are such an effective way of transferring power through the generations? They offer continuity. They offer reassurance. They used to offer the blessing of God and the legitimacy that that, of course, endowed. And, when that, and then it changed and they came to represent states and peoples and nations. One of the ways that they work is that they seem like us and yet they're not. They're like sort of gilded versions of our own lives. There are two sorts of power family. There's what I call demo dynasties, the elected dynasties. The Bushes are a good example of this. You get the reassurance of the name, almost a sort of brand name, but you can unelect them too. And then you have families today that are almost like monarchies, you know, like the Kims of North Korea, the Assads of Syria, and so on. The political family remains incredibly powerful today. And do you think the same characters or characteristics are often repeated in dynasties? I probably like you, one of my starting points is, is Russian history. But if you look at the Tsars, I mean, they're a very, very different people. But there is something of that experience of having a Tsar in Russia, which does seem to lead to some commonalities as well. And I wondered, having taken this very broad view, what you find the balance is between these dynastic sort of waterfalls leading to different characteristics or having something of the same political power DNA. Well, I was always tempted to paraphrase Tolstoy here, but 
all families are very similar. All power families are very similar too, because you know the essential challenge is always succession. Succession is the test of any political system, democracy, dictatorship, but obviously in a dictatorship, personal power, um, it's even more important. There are different ways that princes struggle for the throne, depending on the systems that they, they're growing up in. So that there are similarities. There are always rival brothers. There's always powerful mothers supporting their sons. In steppe dynasties, the Ottomans and the um, Mughals, for example, and all the Chinese dynasties, they believe that the mandate of heaven or the blessing of, of God descended on the most capable son, usually. And so it was understood that they would fight for the throne, two more throne, they called it, and that the losers would be killed. And they also had an interesting biological tendency, which was to bring in concubines, enslaved women, who would then bring in fresh blood into the dynasty. You say that in liberal democracies, we pride ourselves on pure rational politics without clan, kin or connection, but much politics remains as much about personality and patronage as it is about policy, your words. Why does the familiarity of the political dynasty feel much more palatable to the electorate? And what does it say about the story that we tell ourselves in liberal democracies about our rational choice theory, the fact that we are not easily distracted, if you like, by myths or past practice? You seem to be suggesting we might need to sort of check what it is that's making us vote or behave the way we do. I think you're right. I mean, I think that's a very good point. And, you know, I just think we're less rational, less secular than we like to kid ourselves. I think we like to believe that we're living in systems that are untouched by clan politics. Look at the two great democracies. A single family ruled India for 60 years, the Nehru Gandhi family. And in America, you know, repeatedly, the American electorate turns to dynasties, all people who behave like dynastic rulers, I mean, as in Donald Trump. You know, you've got the Bushes and the Roosevelts and the Kennedys and et cetera. We think that sort of the age of dynastic politics is over. And that is true in kind of France and Scandinavia, Northern Europe. But actually, in Asia and Africa, it's increasingly the norm. There's a huge dynastic reversion today. They look like American republics with presidencies and elections and legislatures. But actually, people cleave to to clan and family. So what happens, I want us to turn to Britain and the monarchy as the omnipresent family in, in British public life. Support for it is sturdy. It's between 60 and 80 percent fairly consistently over the last 30 years, whatever the ups and downs uh, have been of the real life crown. But it is under incredible pressure. I'm talking to you as the Netflix series is on in which uh, Harry, the Duke of Sussex, is clearly in some sense at war, not only with his family in terms of personal relationships, but also seems to be saying this monarchy and the way it's transacted in the present era, there's something profoundly wrong with it. Do you think that that is a kind of warning that the fragility has crept through the walls of the palace? I don't think so. I think power politics is always fragile and reflects difficult times. I mean, we're living in a time when we've had, what, three prime ministers in the last six months, and yet we're talking about the fragility of an institution that's lasted a thousand years. I think the power of these constitutional monarchies is that they personify democracy. They personify often unwritten constitutions in their persons, and that works. The downside of family institutions like these monarchies the Windsor's just one, is that you do have 
the sort of fallout from families. You know, people don't want to be part of the institution or they marry someone and have a divorce or this sort of thing. But actually, the institution is, is surprisingly sound. I mean, when we saw the fall of Liz Truss, how reassuring was it to see that, in fact, the head of state was Charles III, who spent the last 50 years dutifully serving the British state. That's the lesson that we should draw at the moment, rather than worrying about reality shows from Netflix. Reality shows from, from Netflix. It doesn't sound like you take it entirely seriously. I should reflect that you are a friend. I am a friend of the king, and I think that he's doing a great job at the moment. You know, my book is full of dynasties from, from world history, and I look at how they treat rebellious sons in the Ottoman or the Mughal dynasties, trampling them with elephants or strangling them with the bowstring. And I think that in the present situation, no one should grumble about a, a palace in California and a Netflix series. Do you think then that the monarchy needs to change in order to be as durable as you seem to firmly believe that it is? What do the next 50, 100, 150 years look like? I understand that you don't necessarily take this eruption all too seriously. Some might say, uh, let's say as you, writing a history, it might even be a world history in a, a few decades, mm, you know, we missed some warning signals there about the fragility of the monarchy. Oh, you can tell me I'm wrong about that. I just think the monarchy adapts. There's a constant process in all political institutions of correcting. And I think that by moving slower than Twitter would expect, um, they probably get it right. I've never discussed any of this with the king, and so I don't know reactions to this. So I'm not speaking from any authority in that area. But I just think the institution will adapt and has faced many crises before. And I think that it's serving very well as the personification of democracy in a time when actually real politics is extremely unstable. By the way, I think we're very lucky to have Charles III at this time. You've said that writing a book about world history allows you to focus less on Anglo-centric stories, notwithstanding that uh, abiding interest in the Windsors, and to include more women. Why do you think that women have so often been written out of history or somewhere been in, in the margins? And is it as simple uh, as the sort of old joke about where is her story in history? Is it as simple as that, the gendered lens or something else? The simpler answer is that History was written by men and written for men. And so many of the women are routinely degraded deliberately. It is just a simple matter in many ways of just looking for the women characters and finding out that repeatedly they prove incredibly adept politicians. There's a character from medieval Rome, for example, Marozia in this book, who's just clearly a kind of Thatcher-esque gifted stateswoman. And yet she's literally the main character in the so-called pornocracy, the rule of whores. And she was literally called a whore by the leading historian who was a bishop, a German bishop. And that's the only source we have really for her rule. I was about to ask you, given that we know a lot of names of women in history who are famous for doing quite horrible things, uh, for villainy or for seen to be crueler than their sex should have made them. Are you trying here consciously to come up with women who you think have have shone for reasons that are not just to do with behaving as, as cruelly as men? I think it's interesting that you say that they're behaving more cruelly than their sex should have made them, because that in itself is a judgment. I'm reflecting a perception, <laughs> Simon, not my own view, but go. Okay, well, I'm, just, I'm just calling you up on that. Fair dues. That's one of the points of the book, is that 
I treat these female politicians the same that I treat male politicians, or I try to. And they're often exactly the same as male rulers. They're no better and no worse. I think Kossem is a fascinating example, of which there are several in the book, of enslaved women who arrive as slave concubines in the harems of the Ottoman emperors and many other examples, and then rise to literally rule these empires. And it's just a sort of, it's, I think it's a chastening thought that, you know, in the time of James I, Charles I and Cromwell, one woman really dominated the Ottoman Empire, which was colossal at the time, you know, went from the borders of Morocco to the borders of Iran. And she was Kossem, who was this incredibly beautiful, probably Greek woman who, you know, looked after her sons, ruled the empire, promoted them to the throne, um, ran the grand viziers who were the prime ministers, and in the end um, had to agree to the strangling of her own mad son, Ibrahim the Mad, who ruled for about eight years in the 1640s. And in the end, of course, she was murdered herself in a palace coup. For about 40 years, she was at the very top of that empire. So she's one of those characters we haven't really heard of, but I hope the book will introduce people to her, and clearly an admirable person. Do you think women attain and hold on to power differently to men than... I don't think it is that different. The interesting thing is that women couldn't command in battle, or they usually didn't. They usually stayed in the palace and sent out people to take command of their army. So that was a decisive difference. But in everything else, I just don't think they were any crueler. I think the real point here is that in systems of absolute power, personalities count. We both spent a lot of uh, our early career reporting and writing about Russia. And you've taken that uh, into your history writing and written about its rulers from Tsars to modern leaders. What do you think that past tells us about the present and Russia on everybody's minds, of course, because of the war in Ukraine? Where does that leave the country that you now see facing its future? I don't think history repeats itself. But it does distort it, reflect it, commandeer it in different ways. And I think that Putin is obviously channeling the Romanov Tsars partly. Um, He's also channeling Stalin. And yet also Putinism is a new thing, a phenomenon of its time. You know, the Ukraine war is fascinating because it does channel all these different histories. I always thought that Putin's very like Nicholas I, who was incredibly successful at playing off the Western democracies for 20 or 30 years and then went too far. And I think Putin is in that state. Um, He is facing some sort of defeat, but how serious that defeat becomes will decide his destiny. I mean, a total defeat will lead to his overthrow in a palace coup. It's very unlikely, I think, in these countries that complete mass movements bring down rulers because of the size of the um, security organs. But he will be overthrown by his own people if he's seriously defeated. But if it ends up in stalemate, he could rule for years. Putin has read your book on Catherine the Great and on Grigory Potemkin, two figures he admires. The Kremlin once asked you to write a memo on how the pair conquered Ukraine. So that was uh, prophetic, or at least an attempt at prophecy. Were you surprised when Putin went for the full-scale invasion that he did? And you know, what's it like looking at what you're looking at, knowing that he's read your work? I was one of the people who wasn't surprised when he invaded. I know a lot of people were. We liked to think that the Russians were so addicted to our private schools and living in Chelsea that they wouldn't risk their Western privileges. But I always thought that the real priorities of the ruling elite and Putin was power and Russia. So I I wasn't completely surprised. And I did remember back when Putin did read the book 
and when his people discussed it with me. And I realized then that he was already 22 years ago obsessed with Crimea and southern Ukraine, which, of course, were the areas that were annexed by Catherine and Prince Potemkin. I was amazed when he stole the body of Prince Potemkin from Kherson. Why do you think he did that? I think he did that because a lot of the basis of his claim to Ukraine is just kind of historical nonsense about Kievian Rus, about which we know nothing. It's a very, very dark period. So Putin is really looking to the 18th century and the late 18th century, the 1780s, you know, which is the same time that America was being created by Jefferson and Washington. Potemkin was conquering Crimea and, and southern Ukraine and founding all the cities that we now hear about, Kherson, Odessa, Dnipro, Mariupol, etc., Sebastopol being one of the most important. That is the real basis for, for Russian power there. And it's very recent. So I think the body of Prince Potemkin is a sort of necro-historical claim to that territory. I presume that he's just going to build some sort of mausoleum in Moscow, not unlike Lenin's. I can see in the marble, you know, already written the names of those cities, Kherson, 1778, Sebastopol, 1783, you know, as a sort of claim on those cities. Odessa wants to tear down the statue of Catherine the Great. So that's, you know, the problem with this, isn't it? Once you start to build now and, and build in a war on memories of long ago figures, it's a sort of cycle of destruction, also of historical memory, as well as what's happening on the battlefield. Do you think statues should be taken down? Do you think that uh, Ukrainians have got right in this instance? Yeah, I do. I mean, I do think the same with historical statues here. You know, historical statues always represent their time. And of course, they can be taken down and changed. I actually think it's a shame that they're taking down Catherine the Great statue if they do, because the cities that they founded did not in any way reflect a nationalist program. I mean, Potemkin and Catherine, they were imperialists and Russian imperialists, guilty as charged for sure. But their vision of these cities they were children of the Enlightenment, they were cosmopolitans, they were Europeans, and they filled these cities with settlers who were Jews and Poles and Ukrainians and Russians and Italians and Greeks and French. And so their vision was of cosmopolitan cities, cosmopolitan New Russia, that was very, very opposite to Putin's ultra-nationalist Russian world that we see today. And they would have absolutely hated Putin. You've described history as a deadly trade and noted that the Russian historians who helped you with your books about Stalin are largely either in exile or in hiding. Do you think history in the profession itself is now having to take more risks in order to write about the past and, and tell truths? Well, I think history is always really political, always has been. And the book is filled with historians who were killed for writing history. Or in the case of Sima Qian, the great Chinese historian, were castrated. Um, and he agreed to castration instead of execution so he could finish his world history book. Uh, I hope that's not had to be a model for you. I, well, it was a model for me. I had his letter always beside me when I was writing this book. And I would have undergone any mutilation in order to get it finished. But you'll be glad to hear, Anne, that I've completed the book intact. But, I mean, historians are incredibly important politically. And in places like China and Russia today, they risk everything to write the correct history. And the, the correct history is all powerful and all important. You write that the pursuit of truth in writing history is essential. Also, that history is subjective. How do you marry that apparent paradox? I think you have to avoid the, the straitjackets of any ideologies 
you know, you just have to try and get as close to the truth as you can by revealing everything without favour or bias at all. And of course, I'm not kidding myself that there isn't great subjectivity in this. It's very hard to be objective. And I've tried as hard as I can, I think. But that is essential for historians rather than following a programme. One question your book hinges on is one that's exercised thinkers for millennia is whether history is driven by forces beyond our our control or mass social forces or by individuals, the great men and women of history. Settle that score for us. Um, It has to be both. Bismarck had all these different um, metaphors, but, you know, one of them was that you can go up to a tree and you can take down ripe fruit, but the fruit has to be ripe for the statesman to do it. And that's a very sound uh, metaphor, I think. You've tackled the world, so I suppose unless you're going fully intergalactic, it's hard to see where you go next in terms of the big lens, or is it back perhaps to something smaller in greater detail? I'm never doing anything like this again. I mean, writing this book has been a great joy, actually, but also a very daunting challenge. And I I didn't sleep for about three years writing it. Next time I do something, it's going to be very small. I'm not going to ask you what it is because you probably either don't know or won't tell me, but we're looking into the holidays wherever we're listening to this. We'll be sitting around and we're rather hoping that at some gathering that we talk to someone perhaps a bit outside our comfort zone or our usual social set. Who are you going to elect from history to have a glass of something decent with? Oh, well, I would have loved to meet Empress Wu, the Tang Empress of China, who I write about a lot in the book, who is a brilliant politician, but also also a monster, but an incredibly successful ruler of China. And I would like to meet her, please. It's going to be a glue vine with Empress Wu for you. Simon Seabag Montefiore, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That was fun. And do let me know who your dream dinner party guest would be. I think I'm going to go with Catherine the Great because at least I know that the banquet and the conversation would be sparkling. Write to us at podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. The Economist selected Simon Seabag Montefiore's book as one of our favourites of the year. And to read the full list, visit our website, where you'll also find our picks of the best films, albums, podcasts, games and television shows of 2022. You do need to be a subscriber to read them, though. So if you're not signed up already, well, why not give yourself the gift of a subscription? We've got a special introductory offer just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in Bahrain, where I find myself this week, this is The Economist. Economist. 